Well, let me just uh, begin this morning by saying it's good to be back with you. Uh, I want to uh, thank you, and I think certainly on behalf of the Marinelli family as well, for all of your thoughts and prayers to our family as we uh, traveled to Indiana for the sudden passing of uh, my father-in-law. And the Lord granted us some good time with family there and uh, a good way to honor his life. And um, so we thank you for that. And all the outpouring of texts and cards and all of those things uh, mean a great deal to us. So thank you very much for your support. Uh, let me also thank you for your singing this morning. Um, you really sang out this morning. And uh, I was blessed by that. I don't, I don't always sing during the song service. If I'm teaching Sunday school, I'll, I'll have no voice if I really sing out. Uh, for the message, but I get to listen. And uh, when you sing out, it's a blessing to me. So maybe you think, maybe Pastor Matt will preach better if I sing louder. So go ahead and do that, okay? And let's try that. Uh, but, but thank you for that today. I, I, um, I'm encouraged by that. Well, if, if you have a Bible, I want you to open to the book of Ecclesiastes. I've been trying to get us to this book for some time. We've been interrupted by weather events and uh, travel plans and a variety of things, and uh, so I'm eager uh, to share with you this morning. If, if you have a pew Bible, it's on page 518, and I really want to encourage you to look at a Bible today because it will help you really see how all of this book fits together. Uh, that is my goal this morning, just to kind of view it from 10,000 feet, as it were. What do you think of these quotes Sorrow is better than laughter. How about this one? How the wise dies just like the fool. What about this? There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. What about this? So I hated life. Because what is done under the sun was grievous to me. Certainly you're familiar with this. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. These are just some, in fact, just a few of similar sayings that are sprinkled throughout this book of Ecclesiastes. So what are we to make of these? Are these the morbid musings of a grumpy old man? Certainly, someone has said, the book of Ecclesiastes must have been written on a Monday morning. <laughs> Why so gloomy? Ecclesiastes is a book that forces us to take a hard, honest look at life. And when we do, we recognize that life doesn't always satisfy. Justice doesn't always prevail. 
hard things happen that cannot be explained, and that ultimately death comes to us all. If all of life is unfulfilling and unsatisfying, we would be tempted to draw conclusions like I just shared with you from the book of Ecclesiastes. Does anything matter? Does this life really matter? And so Ecclesiastes is a book that gives us honest assessments and conclusions about life. And it is the conclusions, or these are conclusions drawn by a man who has spent a long time thinking about this life. And anyone who takes time to stop and contemplate and think deeply about this world in which we live would be drawn to similar conclusions. So I hated life because it's very grievous. Ecclesiastes pulls no punches. It looks at this sin-cursed world, not through rose-colored glasses, but through clear-eyed spectacles, and it draws stark conclusions about this life. Because of this, one pastor wrote this about Ecclesiastes. He said that it is the most contemporary book in the Bible. He says Ecclesiastes is a satiric attack on an inquisitive, hedonistic, and materialistic society. It exposes our mad quest to find satisfaction in knowledge, wealth, pleasure, work, fame, and sex. Ecclesiastes exposes who we are as a person living in this life that is broken and fallen. I would agree with this pastor because this is right where we live in 21st century America. I don't know if you're aware of this, but sociologists are speaking of an increasing amount of despair among Westerners particularly those that live in the United States. In fact, there's a couple of economists of all things, a Nobel Prize winner, Angus Deaton, among them, who raises grave concern of what he sees as the rise in deaths of despair in the last two decades of America. That particularly among middle-class white people, there has been an increase in suicide and people that die as a result of overdose or substance abuse. And to them, they say, this perhaps is like the canary in the coal mine. It shows us that something deadly is among us. We just haven't discovered it yet. In fact, they say in this Wall Street Journal article that a failure in, of spiritual and social life seems to be trending towards suicide. Here you have secular people who give no claim to know God or who he is, and yet they themselves are seeing a growing despair in our nation. What they are seeing is the growing despair as a result that something's missing. We seem to have it all, but something's missing. 
I would suggest that many people who find themselves in that kind of despair are coming to a right conclusion. This world, when you look at it, can be bleak and hard, but they're coming to a wrong solution. The solution is not to exit this life. The solution is find the one who is life. And so this book of Ecclesiastes speaks to our age. It, as it were, takes us by the collar and shakes us in the face and says, just look around. See what is here. This isn't all there is. In fact, we're told at the end of this book, in the 11th verse of the 12th chapter, that the writer says that that these wise words that are given to you are like an ox's goad. Do you know what an ox goad is? It's it's a long pointed spear or staff that would be poked in the flank of the ox to move the large animal in the right direction. And the writer says, I'm writing all of these things to point you in the right direction, to, to, to get under your skin as it were so that you'll think really hard about these things. And so this morning as we begin as a church family together our exploration of this book and and what it has to teach us, I want to introduce it to you again from 10,000 feet today. I want us to look broadly at the overview of this book so that we can keep in context the specifics as we go through it week after week. Perhaps more than any other book in the Bible, it is vital to do this with Ecclesiastes, to remember the overall picture, because many have come to this book and read statements like I just showed you on the screen, and they have said, this book isn't worth reading at all. It's depressing. It's difficult. In fact, some people have even said it shouldn't even be in the Bible. I suggest to you it's because they have lost this 10,000-foot view of what the book is about and what it's trying to do. So let's take this journey this morning and get on the airplane, as it were, and fly over Ecclesiastes, looking down here and there to see what it is that God is trying to teach us through His Word. In order to do so, we need to answer a few questions about this book that are very important to it. The first question is this, who wrote this book? Who is the author? What's his background? What's his perspective? And for that, I just want you to note the title, Ecclesiastes. That's actually a Greek term. If you know anything about Greek, or maybe you've even heard this before because you've been churched, the first part of that word is the word, you could say, ekklesia. And that's a Greek word that's actually used frequently in your New Testament, and it's the word for church. What it means is gathering or an assembly. It means a a gathering together of people. And this Greek term Ecclesiastes is actually a translation of an Old Testament word that means the same thing. The Old Testament word is the word koheleth. Koheleth means assembly or gather together, and and specifically it means of the one who speaks to the assembly, the one who addresses a gathering. So think of that in our context here. Here we have a gathering, we're gathered together. Who is the speaker right now in the assembly? How would you refer to me? You might call me a 
preacher, right? I am addressing the gathered. And that's exactly how the word is translated. Look at verse 1. The words of the what? There's your term, koheleth. This preacher. Well, it's as if he's saying, gather around, gather in assembly, so the preacher can explain to you. In fact, this is exactly what took place during uh, one of the feasts of the Israelites when they came together for the Feast of Tabernacles. This book would be read. They would gather around and hear the words of Koheleth the preacher from Ecclesiastes. And there was a reason they did that, particularly on that feast, that we'll probably get to at some point in the book. Well, who is this preacher? Well, look how he further identifies himself in verse 1. These are the words of the preacher. Notice he is a son of David, and he is a king in Jerusalem. Now, there's disagreement as to who actually wrote this book because the writer never specifically identifies himself. Many people think, well, it, it probably was not Solomon because Solomon identifies himself in Proverbs 1.1. He's not afraid to identify himself. And so because this guy doesn't, it must not be Solomon. I don't, I don't think that's a good argument. Some people say, well, it must be multiple authors. Maybe multiple people contributed to this work, and, and so you have various people speaking at various times. Again, that, that's a theory, but I don't think it's the best. Let me just give you some more descriptions of the person writing this and see if we can come to a conclusion. We know he's called the son of David, a king in Jerusalem. So that kind of narrows it. A descendant of David, one of the kings of Jerusalem. But there are several. But here's what else it says about this person. Look at verse 12 of chapter 1. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. Now look at verse 14. And I've seen everything done under the sun. Now I want you to look at verse 16. I said in my heart... I have acquired great wisdom surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has great experience of wisdom and knowledge. Who does that sound like? Who only could make that statement? Surpassing all over Jerusalem? And I don't think he simply means David his father, but there were other kings in Jerusalem, one in particular, a guy named Melchizedek. Right? Remember him? Notice this as well. Look at chapter 2. Look at verse 4. This preacher says in 2.4, I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forests of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves. I had slaves who were born in my house. I had great possessions and herds and flocks more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered myself silver and gold, the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of men. Who alone could say that? I think that's obviously pointing us to the fact that this book was written by Solomon, the wisest king, the wisest person on earth outside of Jesus Christ. 
The question is, when did Solomon write this? He wrote other books, right? What other books did Solomon write? You're probably most familiar with the one I referenced earlier, the book of Proverbs. He didn't write the whole book, but the majority of it was written by him. Well, Solomon also wrote another book. It's one you probably never read, right? The Song of Solomon. I think that Solomon wrote that book very early in life because it's a story about romantic love and marriage and the joy that God gives in that. And so Solomon celebrates that as a young man when he writes that Song of Solomon. And then I think a little later in life, Solomon now having asked for wisdom and been granted wisdom, he writes the book of Proverbs, and he's trying to share this wisdom that he has, and, and he's really rejoicing in wisdom and how it's guided him, and he's very thankful for the wisdom, and he's sharing it with other people and how to live wisely in earth. And then I think we should understand that Solomon writes Ecclesiastes at the end of his life. Because remember, though Solomon was wise, he didn't always behave wisely. The book of 1 Kings, we're told that he multiplied wives to himself. And this was kind of the way they did in the ancient day to create treaties with people. And so other nations would come and want to make peace with Jerusalem. And Solomon was at the, the height of power in that day. And so he would marry the daughter of a foreign king. And so war would not simply be just a remote matter. It would be a family matter. So let's engage in this kind of treaty. And Solomon had many wives. And the Bible says they turned his heart away from God. We're told that Solomon multiplied horses, something that God specifically had said the king of Israel should not do to trust in the arm of the flesh, but Solomon did. And so Solomon's heart turned away from God. And I think Ecclesiastes is Solomon coming to the end of his life and looking back and saying, when I turned away from God, I forgot what really mattered. He's looking back over his life now. I think he's saying in Ecclesiastes, my great wisdom didn't always make me wise. In fact, sometimes my great wisdom couldn't even figure out everything under the sun, and it left me empty. So Ecclesiastes is, is an autobiographical account of Solomon looking back over his life. Why does he write it? We don't know. Maybe, maybe because Solomon got news from a doctor that said, you don't have long to live. And you know how that makes us all think very long and hard about life. What does, what does this mean? How have I lived? But I think we should see this is King Solomon in his latter years. Well, why is he writing? Well, we would know this something from the audience in the book, and all we can assess from his primary audience is this. It is, it is a gathering of people, as we mentioned in the title, but it is also suggestive that the people to whom he's writing, they're very interested in material things. Because many of the words he uses are from the world of commerce, the world of trade and investment and, and materialistic things. And he keeps coming back to these words and these terms. And so I think he's writing to people who they themselves have become preoccupied with material things. 
And if you think about it, it makes sense because under Solomon's reign, there was wealth unimaginable. And the people under his reign must certainly have profited from that. And so their whole life now is tending to be bound up in the things that they can acquire and possess. And now Solomon's writing to them and he's saying, that's not all there is to life. Those things will actually leave you empty. And so I think, why was it written? It was written, as again he states in the 11th verse of the 12th chapter, to goad people who are preoccupied with this world to consider its ultimate emptiness. To cause them to think beyond what's right in front of their face. To think about eternity. To think about what really matters. Well, how does he do this? What, what does Ecclesiastes teach? How would you know primarily what any book of the Bible teaches? Well, you'd have to dig into it, and you would probably do best to look at repeated terms, things that are said frequently, because you're getting the idea, you're hitting on a theme of something. There are some phrases that occur regularly in the book of Ecclesiastes that help us in this. The first is these. This, 28 times in this book, you have a little phrase, under the sun, right? Look at chapter 1, look at verse 3. He says, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Now, what does under the sun mean? Well, we take it very literally. We're on this side of the sun. And what the writer is saying is let's think about life if all that what there was to life was everything under the sun, but there was nothing to consider beyond the sun. In other words, we would say that's the place of the spiritual where God dwells. But oftentimes we forget about that, and we are prone just to keep our blinders on the horizon and live life under the sun. What is the here and now? And 28 times he repeats this phrase, and he's saying, this is what life is like under the sun. This is what happens under the sun. This is how we view it when we leave God out of the picture. And so what he is dealing with primarily is this. He's saying, let's avoid a secularist, materialist worldview. That's life under the sun. There is no God, there is no spirituality, there is no life after death. This is all you get. You've got one shot at it, so get all you can, because this is all there is. And Solomon comes at it from that point of view, and he says, okay, let's think about that. Is that really satisfying? Is that really a good way to view the world? And when you do that, he brings up another word that occurs 38 times, and that's in the second verse. In fact, it's five times in the second verse. And what word is that? Okay, how many of you, when you hear the book of Ecclesiastes, that's the first word you think of, vanity? Probably many of you, because it occurs so frequently. Well, what does he mean by vanity? We typically think of the term as empty. Really, the term has the idea of, of breath or, I think, better, smoke or vapor. Like how James speaks in his little epistle in the New Testament that life is like a vapor. And that's why I have 
the idea of a vapor or smoke on there. What, what, what does it mean? It means smoke is something I can see. It looks material and it looks solid, but when I grab it, what happens? You can't. It slips through your fingers. It appears one way, but it's actually something else. And this is the Hebrew term havel that, that really is communicating this. It's life is empty like that. This, this all looks very real and solid, but you can't hold on to it. You're going to let it go someday. So is it really worth living for? He'll teach us that life under the sun fails to produce what is expected. It fails to truly satisfy and quench our deepest desire. He'll, he'll put it in these terms. Look at chapter 1 and look at verse 14. He says, I've seen everything done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and what? Chasing after wind. I'm trying to catch the wind. Can you catch the wind? You can't catch the wind. And he says, life is like this in this material world. We're constantly chasing these things, but I'm never satisfied. The chase never ends. So what he teaches us is that life under the sun viewed that way really is vanity. You can't hold on to it. And so because of that, some people have come and read the book of Ecclesiastes, and they say, these are the conclusions that this guy comes to, and, and he's, he's just simply telling us that life is hard and difficult, and there's nothing you can do about it. However, as you read through this book, it's like portals beyond the sun open up at various points. And he'll go through, and he'll say, this is empty, and this is vanity, and this is difficult, but... Here's a ray of sunshine from the other side of the sun. Let me show you some of those. Look at chapter 3. Look at verse 14. I perceived that whatever God does endures forever. You see, he's saying we've been looking at the horizon Now let's look past the sun. What God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it nor anything taken from it. God has done it. Why does he do this? So that people what? Fear before him. Basically what he's saying here is God has built into this material world an emptiness. And the reason he has is that people look beyond the material world and they fear God. They acknowledge him. They know that he's there. Look at chapter 5, verse 7, the very last phrase. He says, God is the one you must fear. Again, it's this portal open beyond the sun. Look at chapter 8 and verse 12. He says, though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who what? Fear God because they fear before him. And of course, the book closes this way in chapter 12 and verse 13 when he says, the end of the matter, all has been heard. What's the end of the matter? Fear God. Keep his commandments. So Solomon, while talking about life under the sun, he he doesn't leave out that which is beyond the sun. In fact, he allows it to break into our understanding to show us that We really can't see this world clearly without looking at what is unseen. Fearing God 
is essential to how we live as God's people in this world. In fact, he would go so far as to say that apart from God, this life doesn't make any sense. Only with a biblical worldview can you make any sense out of this world. And so what does it teach us? Fearing God is actually key to enjoying this life. Without it, you can't. And so here's a theme. You might want to write this down or somewhere in your Bible or take a picture on the screen because this will help us as we work through the book. What is the theme of this book? Fear God to turn an empty life into a meaningful life which will enjoy God's good gifts. Fear God and don't miss out on life because God intends for you to enjoy this life but only in the fear of him. Well, how does he say this? How does he communicate this theme? What's his his structure? I want to be a little bit technical with you to kind of give you an outline of the book and point some things out. Maybe you're not used to this. I would encourage you to write in your Bible. I know you may feel that, you know, that's like desecrating the Bible. It's not. It's just paper. Okay? But when you write in your Bible, it kind of helps you keep these things together as you're reading this. And I think this structure will help you. Now, to be fair, uh, I've read a lot about Ecclesiastes, and there may be as many outlines as there are authors that I read. Because people say, well, there really is no structure to it. It's just kind of just throwing everything out there. But, but I do think that, that recently there has been some collusion in regard to a structure, that this isn't just a haphazard book written and thrown out there. There's actually a very specific kind of structure to it that I think is very compelling. Let me show you that. Here's how the book is laid out. It begins with a prologue. We read some of that today, verses 1 and 2. It's kind of the introduction of the book. Who's writing it? What he says in the book? Vanity of vanities. And then beyond that, he has this poem that we read this morning that John read for us. It's a poem on human toil. It's a poem really about time that people keep on working hard and they keep on doing things, but but things are always the same. And it's time that just seems to keep going on and a generation comes, a generation goes, and that's just how life works. And then you come to the body of the letter. And the body of the letter begins in chapter 1 and verse 12 and runs all the way to chapter 12 and verse 7. And in this body of the letter, two things are happening. Number one, there's an investigation of life under the sun. And from personal experience, Solomon says, let me tell you how I tried to investigate this life. Let me tell you what I did to try to figure out what it was all about. And what's very interesting is he has several sections of things that he goes over, and each section ends with a similar phrase to tip us off that he's concluded that study. Here was his next one. Let me show you that phrase. Look at chapter 1 and verse 14. We've already seen this. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a what? Striving after wind. And that phrase is going to be repeated in chapters. Uh, 2 through 6, 
to show these various pursuits. For instance, look at chapter 2 and verse 11. So in my Bible, right next to 114, I've put 211. It takes me to the next one. Look at chapter 2, verse 11, the end of the verse. Behold, all was vanity and striving after wind. And then I put chapter 2, verse 17. Look at that verse. How does that verse end? For all is vanity and striving after wind. And look at the end of the chapter, verse 26. This also is vanity and striving after wind. And look at chapter 4 and verse 14. God has done it so that people fear before... Sorry, I'm in the wrong verse. 4.14, he says, This also is vanity and striving after wind. Look at verse 16 of chapter 4. Vanity and striving after wind. Chapter 6 and verse 9 is the final section. Vanity and striving after wind. And what you find is there's this investigation that Solomon is undertaking. He's saying, I tried this, and I tried this, and here's what I found. And he's investigating life, and his conclusions are always the same. I can't hold on to it. It's like smoke. I'm chasing the wind. And what that does, it brings him next then to some conclusions about life. And that's what the second half of the body teaches us in 6.12 to 11.6. Go to chapter 6. And look at verse 10. This is the center of the book. Whatever has come to me has already been named, and it is known what man is, and that he's not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity, and what is the advantage to man? Now, verse 12, notice two questions. Who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? Second question, and who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? In his conclusions, he answers those two questions. Question one, who can tell what is really good in this life? Because I leave it all behind. It, it passes so quickly. Who can tell where I should invest my life? Second question. And who can tell the future? What he's saying is, I can't control this life. And I don't know the future. These are the conclusions that he draws. In fact, you can see this in another phrase that occurs repeatedly. Look at chapter 7. And look with me at verse 14. In answer to this first question, who controls life or who knows what is good, he says, in the days of prosperity be joyful, in the days of adversity consider, God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. Look at verse 24 of chapter 7. That which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? Look at chapter 8 and verse 17. Then I saw the work of God that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much he may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. So you can see these are his conclusions. He's saying, I've tried, I've looked, but you just I, you cannot figure it out. And then beginning in chapter 9, running all the way into chapter 
11, you have the answer to the second question. Remember the second question? The first question was, who knows what is good? How can you figure out what's really good? And he's saying, you can't find that out under the sun. The second question was, and who knows the future? And that he begins to address in chapter 9. And again, there's a phrase. Look at verse 12. 9.12. For man does not know what? His time, like fish that are taken in a net. You don't know the future. You don't know what tomorrow holds. You're not in control of that. Look at chapter 10 and verse 14. A fool multiplies words, though no man knows what is to be, and who can tell him what will be after him? See, he's saying nobody knows the future. Chapter 11, verse 2, give a portion to 7 or to 8, for you don't know what disaster may happen on the earth. You can't tell the future. Verse 5, as you do not know the way of the spirit that comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. In the morning sow your seed, at evening withhold not your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, this or that, whether both alike will be good. He says, you, you, you don't know. Sometimes life is just, dare I say, a roll of the dice under the sun. So you have these conclusions about life. And then you have another poem beginning in chapter 11 and verse 7. And this poem, though it's not offset in our text, I think it should be because it is a poem. And it's a poem about old age and death. It's very picturesque. It, it talks about how old age happens to us all until eventually that we die. And it says, here's how we must think about life. We're all headed this way. We will all die. And then finally, you have the epilogue, we would call it, chapter 12, verses 8 to 14. Remember how it began in verse 2, vanity of vanity, says the preacher, all is vanity. Look at chapter 12 and verse 8. What does that say? Same thing. It's like bookends. And so now he has the book completed, and now is the epilogue, verse 8. Besides being wise, the preacher taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads. Remember to point you in the right direction. Nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They're given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these, or making many books there is no end, and much steadiness is a weariness of the flesh. Now, young people, don't show your teacher that at school tomorrow, all right? Verse 13, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God. Keep his commandments. This is the whole duty of man. Because God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. This is the structure of the book. And what do you note about it? It's mirror images. Prologue, epilogue. Two poems. The body. The center is chapter 6, verse 12. The reason that's significant is because this is often the way that Hebrews would write. It's called chiasm. And if you understand this, you see it multiple places throughout your Old Testament, even in the New. 
I think this is the right way to view how he is saying what he will say. But all that's interesting, all that helps us, I think. But what we really want to know is this. What's the point? What's the point of this book? What is the goad? Ultimately, what we will see in Ecclesiastes is that you and I should enjoy this life because God is good and he has provided it for us. But don't try to get too much out of it. It's like you love milk and you love it so much you buy a cow. And you're out there every day trying to milk that cow. You are always on that cow to produce milk so much to the point that you wear that poor cow out and it eventually dies because it was never intended to give all that you have placed your desire upon it. What Ecclesiastes does is says, quit trying to milk this world. It will never give you all that you want out of it. It's like smoke. You can't grab it. He doesn't say, so don't use any of it. Don't enjoy it. No, what he'll say is the only way to truly enjoy it is if you keep it in its proper place. The moment you elevate it above God is the moment you'll find just how futile it is. So God is good, and he gives good gifts in life, but don't forget, it's the fear of God that's central. Keep him first, and you will truly enjoy this life. It's okay to enjoy Fleeting aspects of life, but don't make them ultimate things. The other thing he'll teach us is remember that you're accountable. This will help you enjoy this life. Remember at the end he says, God will bring everything into judgment. And what he's saying is not, watch out what you do because God's going to judge you. No, what he's saying is, Enjoy this life as God intends. And the way you'll enjoy it is to remember that ultimately you're accountable for it. And that accountability helps me to enjoy this life in the ways that God intends where I can enjoy it to the fullest. So remember that. It'll keep you on track. Judgment is assessment or evaluation. God is not making a threat. He's just giving a promise. And so here is the primary point of Ecclesiastes. You must reject a secular worldview which leads to despair and make God the focal point of your life. Why is this important for us? 
It is commonly understood, and I think rightfully so, that we are no longer living in a Christian nation. One time we had a Christian heritage. People were sort of taught Christian values and principles, and there was this awareness of God, at least in the culture. And what we have decided as a nation is that's dangerous, so let's put God in a closet and let's forget about him. And you don't ever bring him out in the public square. You can talk about him in the doors of your church for now, but let's leave him there. So when you leave this building today, you are constantly bombarded through the airwaves and through people that you talk to, and they're constantly telling you this, life is normal without God. We don't need him. Look at all we're doing. And you're constantly bombarded with this perspective that I can, if I can just get more things out of this life, if I can just get more education in this life, if I can just handle this relation better in this life, I will be satisfied. I'll finally have what I've been looking for, and it's a lie. And Ecclesiastes takes you by the collar and says, think about it. Are you going to believe that? What it says is, you know what's real. What's real is who God is. What's real is what's above the sun. And so spend more time thinking about that. And it's not as if I have to choose one or the other. It's when I make the choice to focus on life above the sun and who God is, I really get to enjoy the other. Because God is a good God who made it all. I want to end with this. We actually have a New Testament parallel to the book of Ecclesiastes. And it's a particular passage that really puts this in perspective from a Christian perspective. Remember, Ecclesiastes is written in the Old Testament. And I was challenged this week in reading with somebody, and they said, don't preach Ecclesiastes like a rabbi. In other words, don't say this is Old Testament wisdom literature, and any rabbi could get up and say what I just said. It says, remember, we have the whole Story. So let me show you the whole story. Look at Romans chapter 8. So I think this is Paul's commentary, as it were, on the life that we're living now and how we should think about it. Let's just read, beginning in verse 18. Paul says this, Christian context, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Stop. Here's what Paul's saying. This world that we live in, it's a fallen world. It's a cursed world. There are difficult things that happen in this world. There are trials and tribulations. And he says, it's because somebody made it that way. Somebody subjected it to a curse. 
Who is that? God did. Because when Adam and Eve chose to rebel against God in the garden and said, we don't want to image God, we want to be God, God said, because of that, the whole earth is cursed. And this creation that was meant to sustain you and work in cooperation with you now works against you. And yet we constantly, as human beings, strive after it to get everything we can out of it. And Paul says, don't you know it was subjected to futility? What he's saying is, it's all dying. And God did that. Why? Well, look at what he says. Verse 20. Creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. What's the next two words? What's the next two words? In what? What's hope? This isn't all there is. There's more to life than just what's under the sun. And God says, I made this life in a fallen world to crumble and fall apart to demonstrate to you Under the sun, it's like that, but it won't always be like that. Verse 21, the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Verse 22, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in pains of childbirth until now, and not only the creation... But we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, what is that adoption? It's the redemption of our bodies, for in this hope we were saved. Here's the Christian teaching on Ecclesiastes. Beloved, don't live for this world, live for the next. Why? Because there's a resurrection coming. And we have hope in the resurrection because of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us and paid the price for us, is risen and lives again. And because he lives, we too will live forever in a new heaven and a new earth that's not given to decay and corruption. And that's the Christian understanding of Ecclesiastes. The resurrection brings us hope. And therefore, let's glory in it. And let's live for that which is to come. As a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, the resurrection makes all the difference and gives us hope. And let's never forget that. Shall we pray?